they were violence against our community. Because when you decide that you're going to side with these white supremacists and beat us down, you are giving them the green light to do that in actuality. Hi, and from The Griot, I'm your co-host, Dr. Christina Greer, and today we have a special guest co-host. I'm so excited to be here. Hi, my name is Danielle Moody. I'm the host of Woke AF, and you're listening to What's In It For Us. I'm so excited to have you here. Thank you so much for always having me on your podcast, Woke AF. So today, Danielle joins me on What's In It For Us, and we're going to talk about, oh, the woes of the Democratic Party. We've got Governor Newsom in California, your boy Governor Cuomo in New York. We have a migrant crisis still at the border, and so many children are at the border without parents, without food, without shelter. And then last but not least, we've got Mississippi still doesn't have any water. Danielle, what say you? What's going on? Here's the thing. It's a mess. <laughs> the world is a mess. And when we talk about Mississippi not having water, let's just understand Flint still doesn't have water and it's been years. What's happening in New York? Well, after navigating us through an entire crisis, Cuomo's navigating through his own crises, as is Gavin Newsom. And how we come out of the other end of that, only time will tell. That's right. So per usual listeners, we're going to ask the big questions and always think about what's in it for us. Okay, so I'm still getting used to my new transition music. But first, our hot topics, the Grammys. Now, I got to be totally honest with you, Danielle. I don't really watch the Grammys because I don't know who any of these children are. <laughs> I have nieces who are like, the baby. I'm like, I'm sorry, who who is the baby? And I know our parents said the same thing about our music. I feel the same way about young people. But I will say this year's Grammys was Black Girls, Black Girls, Black Girls. Beyonce made history. She became the most decorated female Grammy winner ever. She picked up her 28th Grammy. So she's now tied with the great EGOT winning Quincy Jones for the second most Grammy wins ever. And with the most being held by the late Hungarian conductor, George Solti, who won 31 awards. Basically, Beyonce's on her way to 31 very easily. So we also saw Megan Thee Stallion, who I know mm, you love. I do. We talked about her many times on your podcast, Woke well, AF. She got three Grammy awards and she won the award for Best New Artist, Best Rap Song, and Best Rap Performance. So what do you think about these Black women running the show in the Grammys? Are you excited? What does this really mean? Or is it just kind of lip service? Look, I'm like you and I stopped watching award shows <laughs> a long time ago. When I started to be like, if I have to Google who you are, that means that I'm not as hip as I once was. And it's like, I know these people's music like the baby, I know the songs, but I don't attribute it to somebody's name. But I'm thrilled, especially at the Best Rap Artist Award. I am thrilled. Megan Thee Stallion has been doing the most, okay? I love the fact that her mother asked her, what would Beyonce do? And she said, I'm gonna do what Beyonce does, but I'm gonna make it a little bit more ratchet. I love that. <laughs> she is winning as her unapologetic, truthful self. And I think that that's brilliant. Beyonce is on another level. Beyonce is a goddess that this planet does not even deserve. The fact that her mother, when she reposted her speech said, Beyonce talked about having been working since she was nine. And her mother says, no, no, you've been working since you were seven. I remember it like it was yesterday. Mm. And so 
when we see people that are so triumphant and so brilliant, like Beyonce, we forget about the decades of hard work. We forget about the decades of sacrifice and failure. When you were going to birthday parties and hanging out with friends on the weekends, Beyonce was in heels and at a studio working tirelessly to get to this moment. So I think while we celebrate and give her her roses while she's still here, we also need to really zero in on the fact that you don't get there yes. by just hoping and wishing. You get there through decades of hard work. You get there after giving birth to twins and then going back, making the most iconic Coachella performance ever because you're back working out two weeks after you gave birth. There is sacrifice. And you're also the first Black woman to ever headline Coachella and you recognize what that means. It's funny you should say that, Danielle, because I always think about that old school MTV show, Sweet 16, where they would have celebrities' kids having a big Sweet 16 party. And I'll never forget Big Boy from Outcast. His daughter was featured on one of the episodes and she wanted to be a singer. And so he comes home and he's like, fine, I support my children. I'll do whatever I can. And he comes home. She's eating a burger. She hasn't gone to her singing, her voice lessons. She's like drinking soda. She's chilling and having a great time. And her whole thing, this is back in the day where she's like, I want to be like Beyonce. And this is like Destiny's Child Beyonce right. before we actually knew the hard work that came behind it. And he was just like, have you not even looked at me and the hard work that I've done? There are so many artists. I always think about like the Britney Spears, the Christina Aguilera's, the Beyonce's, the Michael Jackson's. They've literally been doing this since they were seven. And mind you now, seven years old is Star Search. So that means you've been working actually before you were seven to even get to Star Search. And every time I have a glass of alcohol or a hamburger or skip the Peloton and <laughs> it's like, I'm too tired to work out. It's like, you know what? Your little 30 minutes on the bike, honey, is not the four hours of hardcore cardio that these other artists are doing. I love the work ethic. I think that's the thing that I respect most about Beyonce. I'm a huge Solange fan. So like, that's just me. Maybe it's the younger sibling in me. Like, that's my girl. <laughs> Moving to Megan. What I love about Megan is, you know, my mantra, and I've said this on your podcast, Woke AF, it's ask, believe, receive, mm. right? Now, within ask, believe, receive is also work your butt off. But looking at Megan the Stallion's 2014 Twitter post, where she's like, this is about to blow up. I'm about to blow up. It's about to be a glow up. I'm putting it out in the universe. And I tell my students this all the time. If you want something, you have to be honest with yourself, A, that you want it. And then you actually have to do the work to get it. But when the universe knows that it should be working in your favor, everything starts to fall in place. The people who should be out of your life are out. Yep. And the people who should be in are in. And that's what I really love seeing about Megan Thee Stallion, where she has these three Grammys now, but it's this collective effort of all this work she's done over the past basically decade, but she said it. And I love the fact that she said it for the world to hear. I want this and I'm about to go work for it. The thing is that oftentimes we say that we want things and we don't understand the work that is necessary in order to make that happen. We look at the results, but we don't look at the amount of effort that it takes to get these things. And frankly, if you don't set your intentions for the universe, the universe doesn't know what you want. The universe responds in kind to your steps, but you got to step first. And when Megan Vissell, when she said, I want this, I'm claiming this, I am owning this. That is her making her intentions incredibly clear to not only to herself, to the universe and to the world around her, I am ready to receive to your point. And so you have to be intentional. It is not enough to just sit down and say, oh, I want to be the top model or the top singer, the top actress in the world. And I'm going to in and out Burger and my feet are up on the couch and I'm the couch potato. Right. Like, show me that you want this. 
Show me that you're willing to put in the blood, the sacrifice, the tears and the rejection, because this entertainment world that these people exist in for black women, it is a bunch of closed doors and a bunch of no's. Mm -hmm. It is a bunch of press your hair. Don't talk like that. Don't dress like that. Don't do this. Don't do that to make yourself amenable. Can we get the lighting to make you lighter? Correct. <laughs> to make yourself amenable and appeasable to the white mainstream audiences. And what I love about these women is that they have come at a time where people had laid the path before them and they're like, no, I'm showing up as me. You can either take me or you leave me. And that's why I think I was so excited about Lettucey winning a Grammy. Finally. She won it for traditional R&B. Because here's the thing. I've been a fan of Lettucey, I think, since I was in college. And trust and believe, it's been a second since I've been in college. And she, to me, is one of these people where you look at her and you look at her career. And the only thing you can say to yourself is racism. Yeah. The only thing you can say to yourself is sexism. This woman has more talent in her pinky toe mm -hmm. than literally 99% of the artists that we see making crazy money and getting all the accolades. And it's like, Lettucey has just been slowly but surely doing her craft, mm -hmm. making quality music year after year. And to me, when we think about Aretha Franklin, 18 Grammys, Alicia Keys, 14 Grammys, Natalie Cole, eight Grammys, Tina Turner, eight Grammys, Whitney Houston, six Grammys. That sounds like a lot. But like for the level of talent of those women, that number should be quadruple. Let us see getting her first Grammy. I believe it's her first Grammy. It's her first Grammy. 14 nominations. She should have 14 Grammys. Minimum. Bare minimum. I think that Lettucey is an example of what it means to mind your business and mind your craft. Mm. Because she is somebody that for decades has been putting in the work, has been making the art, has been keeping her head down and just continuing to do what it is that she loves and put it out for the people that she's listening to. Everybody will tell you, look at the compromises that Whitney Houston made at the beginning part. Look how it ate her alive. Mm -hmm. You look at the ways in which you adjust yourself in order to make yourself digestible for other people. And I think the beauty of this win for her is that you get to win as you. You don't have to look back at these wins and say, you know what? I had to start out as a pop star. I had to do this. I had to be the bubblegum person. And then I got to do what I am now. This is the same thing with Beyonce. Beyonce didn't start out as the black power Yoruba princess that we see now. <laughs> right. Not at all. That was not her journey. But her journey is a lot of our journeys. The older that we get, the more woke and conscious that we become. And then that comes into other aspects of our life. But I think that this win for Lettucey, I think that it's amazing. I think it's a long time over do, but she did it on her own terms. And to me, that matters more than doing the politicking that is necessary in order to win a Grammy, because there are a lot of politics that are involved. Mm -hmm. And you saw the pushback with that as well. It's so interesting because we saw it with Monique and the Oscars. So wait, I have to go on a campaign yeah. to get this award about something where I'm supposed to just be talented. But you said something a minute ago that I wanted to circle back on, which is the number of times that these women are rejected. So we know that there are a whole bunch of Black women who weren't even nominated for Grammys that should have been. And, you know, shout out to her, H.E.R. She was nominated and won a Grammy. We're seeing these authentic Black women being able to win Grammys. But if you listen to Spotify, there are so many dope Black women right now making music that aren't anywhere near the conscience of the Grammy folks who were making these decisions. I posted something a few weeks ago that people really resonated with, where I was just like, I'm really honest with my students about getting rejected. Because if you're getting rejected, then that means you're putting yourself out. Yes. That means you're trying. That means you're outside of your comfort zone. Whenever I get rejected from either a fellowship or, you know, I apply for a grant or whatever it may be, I'm really clear with my students. It's like, listen, not everybody thinks Chrissy Greer is the bee's knees. They're 19 years old. They're like, who could reject you? I'm their teacher. So they think that I've already made it case closed 
door locked. I'm on top of the mountain. I'm like, no, no, no. I'm constantly climbing the mountain. I'm not on the same part of the mountain as you are, but like, I'm not at the top of the mountain. Yep. And they're like, who would dare reject you? And I'm like, a lot of people trust and believe when they get rejected from things, they're able to sort of digest it. Cause I'm like, this is going to be your life. If you keep trying to do better and you keep trying to do more, you got to pick yourself up, allow yourself to wallow for a limited amount of time mm -hmm. and then just keep it pushing and go on to the next thing. And I think that this idea that we can now articulate what rejection looks like, what success looks like, what survival looks like, what thriving looks like is really important to have it in the open. Because before it was like this shameful secret of when people were rejected. Well, because the only people that were allowed to be rejected and fail up were white men. So regardless of what industry it is that we're talking about, is that the only people that were ever able to talk about their failures and then be able to achieve something else because they had multiple shocks were white men. I think that nowadays, us talking about the ways in which we continue to have to navigate in order to succeed, in order to hit different marks of our ambitions and our goals, it's important because young people need to see that. You don't just get on TikTok, have one TikTok video, it goes viral, and all of a sudden you're being paid $50,000 a month just to be you. That's not what that looks like. And I think that it's important for us to pull them outside of that bubble, like overnight success, because there's no such thing. Nobody has popped off overnight that wasn't grinding at least a decade before in some iteration or other. Or the people who do pop up quickly pop off. There's an explosion, then there's a deflation. So speaking of deflations, nice little segue for Chrissy Greer, your girl, Stacey Dash. I mean, listen, she was in some videos. Okay, I'll give you that voice to men. But we basically know her from Clueless. And I love the fact that she was in the movie Clueless because this broad is Clueless. Now, I believe she was also in Richard Pryor's movie, <laughs> a movie from the 80s, from back in the day. But basically, she's a one-hit wonder. We know her from Clueless. And she decided that she's going to dip her little toes in politics and ride hard for Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. And so we see this woman in 2015 so inappropriate and egregious that she gets suspended from Fox News. Like, that's how bad you have to be. And then in 2017, when we have one of the most disgusting, racist events in our country, and I'm talking about Charlottesville, with neo-Nazis marching in Virginia. These are young people. These aren't 80, 90 years old. These are 20, 30-somethings talking about Jews won't replace us, Negroes won't replace us. And then the president at the time comes out and says, oh, they're very fine people on both sides. Mexican immigrants are drug traffickers and rapists and criminals. Something he said while he was making his announcement to run for the presidency. And so everyone still jumped on board. And you got Stacey Dash co-signing that in 2017. And so now she and the likes of Omarosa want to come back to the Black community talking about, oh, my bad. I was ill-informed and misinformed. Now that I've made money playing footsie with white supremacists, now I want to come back to Black folks and say, it was just a lapse in judgment. Let's be friends again. I'm looking at your face. Our listeners can't see Danielle's face, but let's be clear. I'm curious as to your thoughts on Stacey Dash right now. Let me say this about Stacey Dash. Miss me with the BS. Stacey Dash knew exactly <laughs> what it was that she was doing, and so did her bank account. She was misinformed. We all walk around with these things called phones, which are mini computers, in our pockets all day long, every single day. All she had to do was Google, okay? So don't tell me that you were misinformed. You got missed messages. Oh, Donald Trump told you one thing, because we all heard the same things. Mm -hmm. You decided that you wanted to play on the side of bad because you thought that it was going to give you a spotlight because there aren't that many black Republicans 
Republicans up on television talking this hot mess about, oh, Donald Trump loves black people and he's been better for the black community than Barack Obama or Abraham Lincoln or whatever other madness that man said over the last four years, she co-signed. So no, you don't get to come back to the tent. You don't get to come back to the cookout with people saying, oh yeah, Stacey, we're going to take you in. No, because her acts alongside Donald Trump were acts of violence. They were. Mm -hmm. They were violence against our community. Because when you decide that you're going to side with these white supremacists and beat us down, you are giving them the green light to do that in actuality. So we can talk about how Stacey Dash and her rhetoric and her language also helped to funnel us to 1621, that insurrectionist day. So no, you get to sit there in the corner, own your stuff. I don't want to see you at the cookout. You don't get a plate. No. Go sit in the corner. Well, first of all, this cookout's getting real crowded because we keep inviting people that I think we need to be a little more discerning as to who gets to come to the cookout. Okay, there needs to be some real litmus tests going on. And I do think that there's a direct thorough line between the rhetoric of the former president and Stacey Dash to January 6th, because don't forget, the former president used his little black tropes and props as a way to justify his behavior, Mm -hmm. not just to black people, but to gay people, to Mexicans, to immigrants, the whole ecosystem of his racist terrorism that we had to live under for four years is hard to even imagine. So when she says, and I quote, I realized in 2016 that anger is unsustainable and will destroy you. I made a lot of mistakes because of that anger. Girl, what are you angry about? You literally, and this is the piece that makes me so frustrated because you and I both know as educated and quote unquote articulate black women, if you and I decided today that all of a sudden we're going to pull a Stacey Dash and these Negroes can't get themselves together and what happens to them deserves to happen to them and we just need to nestle in the breast of the Republican Party because we are too disheveled and disorganized to ever make anything of ourselves and black on black crime. I mean, all the sort of tropes that these black Republicans and anti-black black people trot around. I think it's so fascinating because, you know, both you and I would have television shows on Fox News, Newsmax. We'd have our own Money. podcast with 12 million people. Money. I would be able to buy so many houses. It's like, Danielle, you want a house? Because I got so much money. I could just give you a house. I could just buy you a house. A house on a house. And let me tell you something. That house would include no mirrors because I would never be able to look at myself in the face. Oh my God. Let's be clear. I'd have to be on some sort of... Anti-psychotic? I don't know. No, some sort of adrenaline because I wouldn't be able to sleep because you know my ancestors would come to me in the middle of the night like, hey girl, what are we doing? I would be afraid to close my eyes on a daily basis because I would be so afraid of my ancestors coming to visit me on a daily basis. Like Christina Michelle Greer, are you literally chasing quarters down the street? Come on. That badly that you're going to talk about your own people, that you're going to work against your own people. You're going to do this to your own people. How dare you, Stacey Dash? So the fact that in 2017, after Charlottesville, and keep in mind, we've got Dylan Roof in the background. We've got this president who's saying all types of wild stuff and just trotting out ignorant Black people day after day. It's almost like a cult. You decided not I make one mistake, not I make one statement. Omarosa, you work for this man for several years, okay? So, and now you want to be woker than woke. You're another one. But you did this. You doubled down. When we called you out, you tripled down. When we started writing articles and think pieces about you and op-eds, you calcified and solidified your support for this man time and time again. So like to come around now that Joe Biden's in office and it's like, wow, I was really misinformed. It's so disingenuous and just cheap. It wasn't even misinformed, Christina, because she was the one that was providing the information. Do you know Mm -hmm. what I'm saying? Like she was the one that Mm -hmm. was going on Fox News as if she was an analyst. 
as if she had some type of deep understanding of our political systems and what needed to happen. You are the one that was providing the information. So you don't Mm -hmm. get to sit around and say like, oh, I was misinformed for all of these years. When you were the informant. When you were the informer. You went on these shows as a political expert. I want someone to write some sort of think piece called Dead Eyes. Because the thing that's common among the Stacey Dashes and the Candaces and the Omarosas and that shuckster from Ohio, that pastor who's TikTok, he's about to go back to prison, all his tax fraud, all of them have dead eyes. That shucking and jiving group of those two diamond and silk, something is off in the eyes. Mm-hmm. It's like, do you believe what you're saying? Or you have had to convince yourself that this is what you believe. But if you look at all of them, they were so new to that type of party. Because they recognize this is the financial train that I need to be on. Most of them were Democrats beforehand. Anyway, they just realized this is the shortcut. There are a whole bunch of Black Democrats. If you're a Black Republican saying wild anti-Black stuff, you get to actually be in the front of the queue. You get to speak at convention. You get to get your own shows. You get millions of dollars worth of support and millions of followers. Money and fame is the harbinger of all evil. And these Black people, they decided that instead of lifting up their own people, instead of telling the truth, they were going to cash in on it. And to me, that's blood money because our ancestors died for you to have these opportunities that you're squandering on a day-to-day basis. So I hope that they're woken up in the middle of the night like it's a Christmas carol on loop. I hope that they are visited by the past, the present, and the future because they are a disgrace and an embarrassment to all of us. Well, we'll continue to think about them and the ways that we can emancipate ourselves from people like them and always, always, always think about what is in it for us. So, Danielle, first of all, it's Women's History Month, and I like to combine Women's History Month and Black History Month into basically two months of celebration of dope Black women. So that's why I wanted to have you on. And we've talked about this on your podcast, Woke AF, this environmental concerns of Black people. And we have been leaders in the environmental justice movement. We haven't always been given the credit, but we are the ones you mentioned Flint earlier. We know Newark, New Jersey has water issues. Upstate New York, where Black communities are, has water issues. There are a lot of Black communities that are really struggling with tainted soil, polluted air, and obviously high levels of asthma and all types of public health effects because of that. And so now we find ourselves with Jackson, Mississippi, and the larger backdrop is Crumbling infrastructure, which we know, remember we were in infrastructure week for like four years and never happened, but we've got this young Black Mayor Lumumba and Mississippi is in a straight up water crisis where thousands of residents in Jackson, Mississippi still don't have water. And the story is like been in the news, but like not really because it's become so commonplace that Black people without basic necessities, we want to talk about quote unquote Africa, the 54 countries that make up that continent, where there's so much going going on in quote unquote developing nations in the Caribbean and on the continent that supersedes what is happening in black towns all over the United States. And it makes me so angry when people are like, well, you know, we're not a third world country. And it's like, first of all, we need to look at some of these quote third world countries. They're doing better than us when it comes to taking care of black people. And so Jackson hasn't had running water since the winter storm paralyzed the city in February. So we're going on weeks without it. And then they keep suffering from these storm-related crises that keep causing these water breaks throughout the city of Jackson, Mississippi, because of the crumbling infrastructure. So how can we protect Black people? We're in all 50 states, but like the South is always forgotten. Outcast mentioned it. Don't forget about the South. We know that a lot of these folks are not upper middle class. So you know that there's no priority for them. 
and they're black. So there it is. There is no love for black people when it comes to policy in a lot of ways. What can we do? And it also just shows the limitations of a black mayor as to what he can do for his own people in his own city. These stories, every time that they come around, are so incredibly heartbreaking because we are just so dismissed. And the fact that it isn't a national news story, the fact that I think I've seen this maybe mentioned twice over the last several weeks about what is happening in Jackson. And I think that, first of all, those of us that do have platforms need to be elevating this story, need to be elevating the fact that, do you know that America is the 11th wealthiest country in the world? And we have pockets of this country where folks need to go to water pantries in order to get water to brush their teeth and to make food at their homes. But you hit the nail on the head. What does this consistently come back to? It comes back to money. We don't give a damn about poor people in this country because we believe that poverty is a making of your own. It is not something that is systemic. It is not something that is developed over time purposefully in order to keep you down. And so what's unfortunate about our democracy is that your voice is equated to how much money you have and what tax bracket you are in. And the fact that we know, if you look at what happened in Texas with that storm and you look about who had light and who had running water back on after that major storm and who did it. All you have to do is look at the grid. Where was the infrastructure? Oh, we need to put Mm -hmm. back on essential businesses. Well, where were all of those essential businesses? They're in white neighborhoods. Why are they in white neighborhoods? Because of redlining. Because we don't put anything in black and brown communities. We don't put hospitals there. We don't put supermarkets there. And so the reality here is that we have so many pandemics. There were so many pre-pandemics leading up to this major pandemic that highlighted so many holes for us. But the fact is that we consistently leave poor people and black and brown people behind because they don't have the resources to pad the pockets of politicians that will actually do their bidding. And when we rely on people to just do what is morally right, we know oftentimes that they choose the alternative. That's what we have seen time and time again. Well, I think also what makes me so frustrated when we think about what's going on in Jackson, what we know is still going on in Texas. We know that there are so many Black communities in Texas that have zero resources right now, but they're just out of the news cycle. We have these major organizations like the New Orleans NBA team, the Pelicans. They're one of the few basketball teams in the U.S. South. And so they're donating bottled water and they're helping with Jackson. But it's like, should that? I'm so tired of these private entities coming to the rescue. Thank you for doing it, Pelicans. Appreciate it. But here's also what I want you to do. I want you to pay your own taxes, Pelicans. So actually the government has money. I want the government to be able to do its job. I don't think that 20-year-old Zion Williamson should be tasked with saving the South, because you know he's doing stuff in New Orleans after every storm. He's donating his own money as a 20-year-old child. Now, granted, he makes a lot of money, but that's not his job. That's the job of the U.S. government. And now we've got the Pelicans organization giving money to Jackson. Thank you for doing that. But I think a lot of this could be diverted if major corporations who were so generous in our time of need actually did what they were supposed to do from Jump Street. If they actually paid people a living wage who work at those places, if they actually paid their taxes that go into the larger coffers. That, to me, is the frustrating piece also with who gets to help in these times of need. And what's funny is that you mentioned the fact that people say like, oh, America, like we're not a developing nation. We have all of these resources. We have all of these things. And yet we rely on philanthropy Mm -hmm. in order to serve it, charity our way out of our baseline issues and problems. We are waiting on the kindness of strangers to do what the federal government should be doing. 
Why are we six years removed from the Flint story and Flint still doesn't have water? And we are just talking about prosecuting the people who are responsible for the amount of cancer and devastation and death that was caused in that area. We cannot rely on philanthropy and charity to get us out of systemic problems. That is what we pay into government for. And our government does not work for us. Or rather, I should say, it is working actually the way that it was set up to work because it only works for white folks. If you're white and you're wealthy, you are good. I really do worry about this philanthropy model because it reminds me a lot of the Carnegie's and the Vanderbilt's turn of the 20th century where we literally are walking around with our tin cup. When you look at Flint and Newark and you really look at the data, the data showed if you had invested $2 million to fix these pipes, we wouldn't have leaching. We wouldn't then have lead in the entire water system. You didn't do just the bare minimum, mm-hmm. which is now Pennywise Pound Foolish is now going to cost you hundreds of millions of dollars. But had you been on the stick and cared about Black people from Jump Street, you would have spent the $2 million to work on those pipes. And then we wouldn't have this problem. But I'm always fascinated with, we got money for war. I say this every podcast But can't episode. feed the poor. <laughs> if we wanted to go to war tomorrow, we could mobilize $190 trillion in about 24 hours. But for some reason, we can't seem to come up with a few million, which we could do. To say nothing about the plastic bottles that are going into the environment. As Tupac says, we got money for war, but we can't feed the poor. And listen, you know I'm a Biggie fan, so for me to quote Tupac, it has to be real. So I think the frustration that I feel is that Black people are always at the brunt of this. As James Evans used to say on Good Times, last hired, first fired. We are the last to get the resources and the first for the resources to be taken away. And then you think about someone like Mackenzie Scott, Jeff Bezos' Mm ex-wife, who is being very generous. She's giving it to Black-led organizations. She's giving to HBCUs. And it's like, yes, you have billions of dollars and you recognize you can't take it with you. And I appreciate the generosity. However, we must ask ourselves, how is it that you and Jeff Bezos have close to a trillion dollars. You're making more money in a global pandemic when people literally cannot eat, feed themselves, clothe themselves, house themselves in any way. But somehow Jeff Bezos is about to be a trillionaire and Mackenzie has benefited from that endeavor that we know as Amazon because everyone's using Amazon because they're trapped in the house. So it's like this never ending cycle of wealthy white people getting even wealthier off of the backs of people of color. It's disgusting. Folks working at Amazon, literally passing out on the floor. Mm-hmm. What are we supposed to do with this system that seems like it is just set up? Racialized capitalism has been set up from day one where there are a few Black folks that escape the trap. There are a few Black folks, I would put us in that category, that kind of make it upper middle class-esque, depending on what city you live in. But for the most part, Black folks are still catching hell like it's 100 years ago. When I think about the amount of people that are close to being trillionaires, these multi-billionaires that have profited as over 500,000 Americans have died, as when we look at the numbers of people that have been affected by COVID, that it's overrepresented in the Black community and the Latinx community. This is everything that is wrong with our capitalistic structure, that there are people that will always be on top that get to benefit from those of us that are on the bottom. But to me, again, we live in a broken country when we're waiting on people to be benevolent, when we're waiting on charity. So what if McKenzie decided, you know, tomorrow, I'm good. I would rather buy 16 jets and hop around the world than I want to give to these Black organizations. Then what? To me, it's a consistent 
problem with who we put in office, what they pay attention to, what they say that they're going to do for folks, and then what they turn around and do. And again, there's no accountability. Do you think that we would be dealing with the problem in Mississippi if we had dealt with Flint, if those people had gone to jail? You see, no one ever faces any responsibility or accountability for what they do to our community. We just continue on. Next story, next topic while people Mm -hmm. are still suffering. You continue to do it because you can. They didn't want to put the $2 million into Flint. Why? Because they wanted that $2 million to go into their pocket, to go into their packs. That's what they care about. But when you have those people and you're saying, this is literally, these are crimes against humanity, basic needs, shelter, food, water. Do you know what I'm saying? And we don't do that in the 11th wealthiest country in the world, I tell you, racism is expensive. And until white people start to understand how expensive, how racism costs them, my friend, Dr. Jonathan Metzl, who comes on my show, regularly wrote the book, Dying of Whiteness. Dying of Whiteness. We're all dying of whiteness. But I think that's the thing. White people, some of them do get it, but they're just willing to die of whiteness because as long as we don't get something, they're fine to fall off the cliff with us. That to me is what's so wild. But I think your point about leadership is really important because as Democrats, we know that there are several shades of blue when it comes to Democratic leadership. And so I want to talk about your boy, Andrew Cuomo, because we are both New Yorkers and he is someone who in Albany has caucused with the Republicans. When Democrats gained control of the legislature and the Senate, he had his IDC, which was that independent Democratic caucus, right? And those were the six Democratic legislators who caucused with the Republicans. And so they could basically slow down progressive politics the way Andrew Cuomo wanted it. And then those people were ousted all but one by sort of young progressive Democrats. And so Andrew Cuomo has basically been like a one man break on all things progressive. New York wasn't the first with marriage equity. Andrew Cuomo loves to say, we're the first with marriage equity. It was like, no, we were the 17th. If you listen, he says, we're the first big state. (laughs) Caveat upon caveat. Caveat, (laughs) like read the fine print in the footnote. Then it's marijuana legislation. We got New Jersey, we got Maryland, we got Massachusetts. That's just the East Coast folks. Nowhere to be found, not even medical marijuana for people who have cancer. And we know post COVID, there are gonna be a lot of people who need some sort of alternative medicines to help them deal with the anxiety and stress. You see him on the bandwagon now. Why? Because New York is in debt. Because COVID and the economic crisis put New York in debt. I just want to harp on the medical, on the marijuana piece for a minute. Because I just think to myself, particularly in the midst of this health pandemic, how much we have stunted ourselves in this country in our development of various treatments because of our religiosity. Oh, religiosity. Because of the fact that the biggest lobbyist against the marijuana industry is the alcohol industry. They're like, no, 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 no. People start smoking weed, then they're going to stop drinking. And if we start seeing marijuana as a benefit to various illnesses that the pharmaceutical company was making money, profiting on keeping you just sick enough, we have to understand that all of these things are in cahoots with one another and connect the dots. At the end of the day, it always comes back to money. Wu-Tang said it right. Cash rules everything around me. Why weren't we pushing forward with marijuana in New York State? Because of the pharmaceutical company, because of the alcohol lobby, because of religiosity and all of these different things. And we stunt ourselves in the process because of it. But now we're in this pandemic, we're in an economic crisis, and what can dig us out of it? Oh, marijuana. Because we've seen in Colorado and in California, guess what? The world didn't fall apart. Guess what? There aren't high mobs running the streets and like robbing people. Well, but here's what's interesting though, and I agree with you on the money piece and how New York will most likely move towards marijuana legalization. I also think though, as equally so, New York will move towards marijuana legalization because A, 
public opinion has wanted to go in that direction for quite some time. And Andrew Cuomo needs friends. Now more than ever. Because he's got the nursing home crisis slash scandal of whether or not he was cooking the books of nursing home deaths and illnesses and ailments during COVID. And then the second scandal, we always talk about multiple pandemics for Black people. It's like, well, Andrew Cuomo's got many of his own pandemics going on because he now has six, I think it's up to seven women who have accused him of inappropriate sexual language. Some have said that he's touched them inappropriately. And so he is grasping at almost anything that will get him positive attention from New Yorkers. And even though people have called for him to resign, resign, we know, you and I know for a fact, Andrew Cuomo ain't going nowhere. He ain't resigning. He ain't going nowhere. Every time I hear Andrew Cuomo, I literally put on Puffy like, we ain't going nowhere. We ain't Go nowhere. I bet you that's his theme song every morning when he wakes up. I bet you in the governor's mansion, he's just blasting Diddy. Okay, before I let you go, I want to get into this last topic. And this is the migrant crisis. And I know you've covered it on your podcast, Woke AF. We still think about these children, these unaccompanied minors who were at the border, hundreds of children. Right now, the U.S. border agents have detained nearly 100,000 migrants at the U.S.-Mexico border in February. That's the highest monthly total since a major border surge in mid-2019. So there's been this increasing number of children arriving at the border without a parent or legal guardian. And U.S. officials are trying to figure out housing options and what are the next steps to release them to sponsors. And I think what just makes my skin crawl and makes me shudder is thinking about the number of children, A, who don't speak English. They don't have anyone they can trust. And we know that there are so many sick and twisted evil people who are in corrections, who are in these facilities. And I shudder to think about the abuse, Mm. not just the verbal and the psychological, but the physical abuse that so many of these children are experiencing With adults that are just seeing it and like letting it ride. What is the solution? Where do we go from hundreds of thousands of folks to resolving this when we know that there's going to be generational trauma? No matter what happens to these kids, whether or not they find a sponsor in the United States or they go back to the dangers of their own home country, my mind almost won't let me fully process what is happening at the border. Since 2017, when the Trump administration instituted placing of children in cages and popped up all of these concentration camps, which is what I refer to them as on my show across the country, I have been terrified about what is happening that we are not learning about. These children have no voice. They have no advocate. And the people that are supposed to be in charge of their care were viewing them as animals. Anytime that we would hear these audio tapes come out of children crying and screaming, we've heard reports about sexual abuse at the hands of these custom and border patrol agents. Who is doing that investigation? We know over the last four years, not a goddamn person. It's a wild, wild west out there. And so for this, I think that the issue in front of the Biden-Harris administration is not just dealing with this humanitarian crisis, but to your point, dealing with the generational trauma. What happens to these kids when they turn 18 and now they're walking on the streets? Like, how do they act? How do they integrate into society, into a country that failed them and not only failed them, but abused them? How do we reconcile with that truth? And again, these concentration places that popped up, they were not meant to hold people long term. First of all, they sure as hell weren't meant to house children. There are no beds. There are no schooling. There's no outdoors. There's no nothing. We're talking about metal pens that you wouldn't put a pack of dogs into for months at a time that we have put children in. And so we need to reconcile, first of all, and be very honest and transparent about what we have allowed to happen on our watch 
with our own tax dollars. And then we need to move from a place of demonization, which we have done to the undocumented population. You listen to Kevin McCarthy this past week talking about, oh, they're bringing COVID, this, that, and the other thing. And I said, I thought COVID was a hoax. So I'm confused about what you're talking about, Kevin. Which one is it, Kevin? Make up your mind, Kevin. I thought it was a hoax. Right. So how could you deliver a hoax? But you know what worries me, Danielle, is that we know what the Republicans are going to say. We know what racist anti-immigrant rhetoric they're going to say. They can look at a child and see nothing but a future gang member and a criminal or making sure a five-year-old is labeled as a gang member and a criminal and a rapist and all the things. My biggest ire, I think, also goes to these Democrats who love this lip service of we need to do something as long as it affects me in zero ways. Yep. As long as none of these children will be in my town, as long as none of these children will go to school with my children, as long as there is no ESL that will be taught at my child's school, unless it's like a Spanish immersion program and they can have a leg up when they go to college because they'll be bilingual because all of a sudden being bilingual is a cool thing if you're of a certain class, but it's terrible if you're poor. So I think I have a disdain for these Democrats who love to talk about this in theory. We should do something in theory. But when it comes to actually helping these families, these families that have been broken apart, level of anger that a child must have, feeling that their parents failed them. The parents are just trying to survive themselves. The level of anger they're going to have towards this country, the level of anger they're going to have towards adults who have done God knows what to them. And then you have Democrats who are like, yeah, well, we did what we could. And we've seen that time and time again with these quote unquote allies of ours who just skirt around like, I'm better than the Republicans. I didn't vote for DJT. I'm not like my other family members. But when it comes time to actually have skin in the game and be an accomplice, all of a sudden, you're mealy-mouthed and quiet. That, to me, is equally disgusting. That's their MO. You know this. This is about staying in power, and it's about doing just enough. That's the problem, is that we allow our politicians to do just enough. Not what is needed, not what is necessary, and not what is not politically good for them. And I'm tired of the just enough. We need an overhaul, and we need people with courage. And I only see a handful of people right now in Congress that have the courage to get these things done. It's a tiny, tiny number. Well, listen, I got to say this. I adore you. I love going on your podcast, Woke AF. And so thank you so much for joining me for basically my February, March Black Women's History Month. Can you please tell us what is next for you? Oh, you're so wonderful. What is next for me is staying sane as we start to emerge from this pandemic and bringing a deeper consciousness to the audience on Woke AF. It is about more than just being woke about politics. It is about being woke in every aspect of our lives so that we can be fully aligned, that we can move from rage to rest and back again, but that we understand our responsibilities as citizens in this country to move it forward. We need to be the ones that are doing the pushing. And so that is what's next for me, continuing to push. Oh, I adore you so much. Thank you so much, Danielle, for coming on What's In It For Us. For all of our listeners out there, please, please subscribe to Woke AF so you can hear Danielle on a weekly basis, breaking it all the way down. Thank you. Promise you'll come back again. Oh my God. Promise to invite me. Yes. Okay. That's all we've got for this week. And as always, we will continue to ask ourselves, what is in it for us? Thank you for listening to What's In It For Us. If you liked what you heard, please give us a five-star review and subscribe to the show wherever you listen to your podcast and share it with everyone you know. Email all questions, suggestions, and compliments to podcasts at thegrio.com. The What's In It For Us podcast is brought to you by The Grio, an executive produced by Kevin Y. Brown and produced by Abdul Kadoos. 